Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling is a live call-in radio program providing doctrinal dialogue, cultural commentary, and insightful interviews with some of today's foremost Christian authors and leaders. Knowing the Truth is the outreach ministry of the Mountain Bridge Bible Fellowship in Traveler's Rest. The goal of the church and the radio program is to seek the glory of God in the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of the saints by the ministry of the Word. For more information, go to www.knowingthetruth.org. Here with today's edition of Knowing the Truth is Pastor Kevin Bowling. Hey, welcome into this edition of the Knowing the Truth radio program. This is Pastor Kevin Bowling. So glad that you joined us on the broadcast today. Yesterday on the broadcast, I had started into our brand new study in the book of Galatians. Galatians, the gospel of grace, or as it's been called in other places as well, liberated for life. It speaks about the liberty that the uh, Christian has in his relationship with Christ, the Christian. The Christian's liberty in Christ, I think, would be an accurate statement of uh, what we find here in this book. Yesterday on the, on the broadcast, I just started into a couple of the introductory thoughts. In fact, this entire week is basically an introductory look at the book of Galatians, the entire uh, six chapters. And then, Lord willing, next week and on next Lord's Day, I'll begin to uh, delve down into the... Uh, the actual verses and the you know paragraphs and passages that we find going through the book of Galatians. But for today and for the um, for the rest of this week, we're just looking at the idea of the of an overview of the book of Galatians to get started, just to give us somewhere to uh, hang our hat, as it were, a little bit of framework about what's taking place in the book of Galatians. So I mentioned yesterday on the broadcast that. Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians is not written to a single church, it's written to a group of churches, and these group of churches are not in a single city, but they're in a region, a very large region, 175 miles wide by uh, 250 miles long, and there's a number of churches that are in there. There's uh, five or six primary cities in which the Apostle Paul traveled through that area and planted churches. So we're talking about cities that we hear about and uh, can see the record of in the book of Acts, cities like Derby and Lystra and Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia, and so forth. These are the, the primary cities where these multiple churches were. The Apostle Paul went on his first missionary journey with, the, with Barnabas, and they planted these churches. They brought the, the gospel to this region. And then later on, he went on a second missionary journey with uh, Silas, and they went back and visited these churches. However, shortly after he returned from his secondary or second secondary missionary uh, missionary uh, journey, uh, we find that uh, there, there was trouble brewing in these churches, and this trouble came from the fact that these churches had fallen prey to a group of false teachers. And so, as I termed it yesterday, the churches were formed by the uh, the Apostle Paul's missionary labors, but then later on they were deformed by the labors of these false teachers that came in afterwards. And these false teachers, they had used a couple of different means in order to deform or try to deform these churches. One was to attack the messenger, and the second one was to attack the message itself. And, of course, the messenger was the Apostle Paul, and they, uh, the, the message was the message of the, uh, the gospel of free grace, that uh, against the idea of making certain works of the law necessary for salvation. So the, the group that came, they were very persuasive, it was somewhat persuasive in their argument, but they were also persuasive because they claimed to be Christians themselves, and they had tried to indicate that they had come out of the Jerusalem Assembly. The Jerusalem Church was a very important church, strategic church, during this particular period of time, and they claimed to have the support of some of the leading saints 
in Jerusalem. And so they claimed that although they were at odds with one of the apostles, i.e. the Apostle Paul, that they actually had the support of other of the apostles, like Peter and John and James, who was the brother of our Lord, and so forth. And so uh, that's what made their their argument uh, additionally persuasive. Now, that wasn't true, that they had the support of the other uh, apostles. Um, they What the apostles were teaching had been emphatically endorsed and embraced by the Church and the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and there they had also laid their hands on the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and sent them out on missionary journey, and they had completely rejected the the false teaching that was associated with a teaching of of people being saved by works that they needed the Gentiles needed to take on Jewish aspects and elements in order to be saved that was that was resoundly rejected at the Jerusalem council but uh, even in spite of that we find that these false teachers nevertheless persisted they were called Judaizers because they were trying to uh, uh force the those that were had come to faith in Christ to force them to take on certain aspects of Judaism as a standard for Christianity as well. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, the, the letter to the Galatians. It's uh, unique among the letters of the Apostle Paul for a number of reasons. One, it's because it's one of the sharpest letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. Two, because uh, along with that concept, there is um, there's a lack of any sort of personal greeting, and there's a lack of any uh, thankfulness to God for what is taking place among the uh, Gentile, I'm sorry, the Galatian Christians. Uh, if we just go back a couple pages in our Bible to the beginning of the book of Corinthians, we find that even to that church that had so many sinful practices that were still going on within the church, even there, the Apostle Paul took the time to talk about what he was thankful that God was doing, what he was thankful for, that God was doing in the life of the Christians there at Corinth. But here, he doesn't do that at all. The Apostle immediately uh, jumps into the subject, and basically, you know, Paul had had uh, looked upon it that these these professing Christians in Galatia that they had basically been turned from Christianity to Judaism, although they were still trying to retain the name Christian. And so the Apostle Paul gave them an extremely stern rebuke in this uh, this particular letter. Um, when we begin the letter and we start to go through it, I think that we can see very clearly that this is one of the most concentrated theological expositions that we find in all the Bible. Uh, the Apostle Paul lays out a great case, and he absolutely demolishes the, uh, the case that was being made by the false, in the false gospel of the Judaizers. And the message to the Judaizers that were uh, promoting this was that uh, not only what they were promoting not only was it another version of the gospel, you know, they may have tried to uh, tell the people there at Galatia that this was just a, you know, a different perspective on the gospel message. Paul says, no, this is not another version of the same gospel, but he says that this is a total perversion of the true gospel message. So Paul put it this way, he called it a, another gospel, which is not another, meaning that it was, it was a gospel of sorts, but not one that had any actual identity with and absolutely no association to the true gospel of Jesus Christ that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles were preaching. So uh, such a perversion of the, of the truth it demanded the strongest possible denunciation, and that is exactly what the Apostle Paul gave it. It was only not very far into the first chapter of the epistle, or of his letter, 
that he writes here, and uh, not very far in at all, and immediately he begins to say in just eight verses in, he says this, eight verses, now remember, some of the verses were just introductory uh, thoughts there in, in the very beginning, but eight verses in, the Apostle Paul says this, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you other than what we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed, he says here in this passage. And then he repeats it afterwards in verse 9. As we have said before, you know, Paul said, you didn't mishear me. You know, I didn't misspeak. I want to be crystal clear here. He says, as we have said before, just a moment ago, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you other than that which he have received, let him be accursed. So in the first verse, it is a, a focus on primarily on the gospel that was preached. So Paul says, if there's anything different than what we preached, then let him be accursed. In the second verse, he repeats the same uh, anathema, but this time he says, anything different than what you have received. So both, uh, you know, from the preacher to the one who received it in the beginning, in either case, any other gospel than what, what was re preached and received, let that man or angel be accursed. Let him be eternally, irrevocably, unchangeably under the wrath of Almighty God for all of eternity. That's the idea in this in this passage. So basically, I think we could say with a pretty uh, high degree of confidence that the Apostle Paul is saying there is no room here for compromise whatsoever in this controversy that is taking place uh, in Galatia. The Apostle Paul was so committed to the core issues of the gospel that not only was he unwilling to compromise with them over it, but he was also willing to confront those who did compromise with these false teachers. Even Peter, though he says here that when Peter, who was preaching the same gospel message that Paul was preaching, when he yielded to the pressure of the, these Judaizers uh, by withdrawing himself from eating with the Gentiles, Paul withstood the Apostle Peter to his face, and he did so in front of other believers as well. He didn't even pull him off to the side and to do it publicly. He thought, you know, you publicly removed yourself from eating with the Gentiles. This, this deserves a public confrontation, a public rebuke. And he rebuked Peter, and Peter repented of what he did. And uh, Paul says not only did Peter do this, but Barnabas was doing some similar things as well. And so Paul, you know, Paul is basically saying this. He, he knew that this was such a vital aspect to the gospel of Jesus Christ that he was willing, if necessary, to separate from, from brethren who had compromised on this essential issue of the gospel because he knew that the justification is by grace through faith alone without works, and that is such a vital aspect of the gospel that it deserves to even separate with brethren over it. Now, from that point there, I made a couple of applications at the close of the broadcast yesterday. I said that uh, we should learn from that, you know, that this idea uh, that we learned from other passages of Scripture about that there can be no fellowship between light and darkness and no fellowship between truth and error. Uh, and in this particular case, there can be no fellowship between the true gospel of Jesus Christ and a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to be willing then, as Paul was, to stand up and expose and oppose all such false gospel messages. And if necessary, we need to obviously be able to separate from those that are teaching these types of uh, messages but we should also separate from anyone who's giving them cover, anyone who is, has compromised with them and is not also willing to call them out and to expose this gospel message as well. We should separate from all those who are either uh, 
directly promoting the perversion of this truth and any of those who are supporting it as well. In our day and age, you know, this type of statement that I just made, uh, many people would say that that statement about separation is uh, like the uh, unpardonable sin that you could commit in this particular environment that we're in. People are so reticent to separate. You know, it's just uh, we're all supposed to be just positive all the time, and if it is not positive, then they, in their mind, then it doesn't uh, equate to being of God. Well, that's not what the Scriptures reveal to us at all, and here's a great case in point right here in the book of Galatians. And so it is, uh, it is a scriptural separation is a Christian duty and responsibility. Now, now hear me clearly here. I don't want uh, people to be thinking that, that I'm saying that, you know, just the slightest little disagreement that takes place, that you should be separating from brethren. I'm not saying that at all. I would say that where the true gospel is proclaimed and practiced, there is ground for Christian fellowship, and you should be in fellowship than with the folks of that church, where, where it is the gospel message is clearly proclaimed and clearly practiced. Uh, there is ground for Christian fellowship. However, where the gospel message is perverted and that perversion is put into practice with immorality, there is no ground for Christian fellowship with that group. We must separate ourselves from them. That's what we clearly see in the Scripture. There are, there are legitimate reasons for true fellowship to take place. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, what we see in marriage. You know, in marriage, there are only, uh, you know, three reasons, three biblical reasons that we can look at for uh, separation and for divorce. It doesn't mean that a divorce has to take place for those reasons, but there are three legitimate reasons why it could take place. So obviously with adultery or abuse or abandonment, those three reasons would be, uh, would be reason for a person to legitimately uh, have grounds for a divorce. So you couldn't end the marriage just because of what people generally call just irreconcilable differences or, you know, which could be mean anything, you know, for just minor disputes and so forth, an inability to communicate or to deal with uh, some level of conflict that has come up in the marriage. Those are not legitimate reasons for divorce. So, But there are legitimate reasons for divorce that are given to us in the Scripture, adultery, abuse, or abandonment, any of those three things would be legitimate grounds for this uh, for divorce, and so it's similar here then with just with the church as a whole. You shouldn't be just you know leaving and separating and uh, from a good church simply because of you know minuscule reasons, you know just minor points of difference on things. It should be something that is actual. Uh, reasons that uh, for a scriptural separation, then it would be a Christian duty. So with that in mind, you know, we started to look at that um, the fact that this is what makes the, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians of such importance in our day and age as it was during his day and age. So the, the stage is set right in the very beginning then for all of this that I've given an introduction. It's set right in the very beginning of uh, of a question, first of all, of authority. Who speaks authoritatively on the subject? Now, they were trying to destroy, they being the Judaizers, were trying to destroy the credibility of the Apostle Paul. And so right in the, the, couple of, the first couple of chapters, Paul spends a, a great deal of time uh, reestablishing his legitimate authority as an apostle, to speak authoritatively on this particular subject, a subject dealing with salvation and what that salvation is that has been revealed to us by God. So he does that for the opening couple of chapters, and then the chapters that follow that, three and four, what we find there is 
is that uh, he gives the primary doctrinal truth about what is being debated. That is, that the debate was between the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, versus the doctrine of salvation by works. So he spends those two chapters then delving down into that issue in a number of different ways and uh, talking about, you know, the doctrinal truths behind uh, the salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. In the, the, the last two, uh, two chapters, then, the Apostle gives uh, an apostolic exhortation and uh, some application about the doctrine of grace in the daily life of God's people. So uh, the tasks that the Apostle Paul had in front of him was he needed to defend his apostleship, number one, and that he had a right to speak authoritatively about the, the gospel, God's salvation of Christ, and the way that that is depicted in the gospel message. His second task was to restate that gospel, the gospel of grace. You know, if they had left this, if they were confused about what it meant, he goes ahead and restates what that message is. And then the, and the third task that he had was to encourage all that had originally embraced that message, to encourage them to continue to live in the liberty of the gospel message. Don't go back under bondage that these Judaizers were, in essence, trying to bring you back under what Paul calls the yoke of bondage. They were trying to bring them back under that. And Paul says, why would you want to do that? Live in the liberty of the gospel of grace. That's how he ends this, uh, this letter. So there were three points that I wanted to make about those six chapters. The six chapters really can be broken up this way quite easily. The first two chapters speak about the personal narrative of the Apostle Paul. The, uh, the next two chapters, chapters three and four, speak about the primary argument of the Apostle Paul in, this, um, in those chapters. And then the third section, is, the last two chapters, deals with the practical application or exhortation, we would say, uh, of the Apostle Paul in chapters 5 and 6. So I said uh, yesterday we, we would start today on this first one, the personal narrative of the Apostle Paul. The, the first point that the Apostle makes here in this uh, personal narrative it's a very personal uh, reflection of who Paul is and how Paul ended up as being an apostle of God and so forth. And so Paul speaks of himself in this section as a preacher of justification. Now, um, as he begins to speak about that subject, we find that the apostle Paul, the first thing that he does <clears throat> is he emphasizes in this epistle, that the gospel that he is preaching is not a gospel that originates with him. It didn't originate with the Apostle Paul at all. Now, when you hear some of these uh, people today that have a poor view of the Apostle Paul, and there is a big, a big uh, attack against Paul himself, and uh, it's called the New Perspectives on Paul. And so they have a, a new way of viewing Paul, and they they do just what the Judaizers are doing. They say hey, the other apostles, you know, we we don't have any beef with them, but the apostle Paul, we think he kind of tweaked the message, or he kind of came up with his own gospel type of thing. This is this is the type of attack that they raise against the apostle Paul. But the fact is, is that the gospel was not a product of the apostle Paul's intellect or of the Apostle Paul's imagination. You know, when they attack the Apostle Paul, they do say this. They say that, you know, that the, he was very smart, that he was, some might even go so far as to say he was, he was genius, you know, just genius in his uh, ability to think through things and so forth. But they go too far with it. They say that he was so much of a genius that he came up with his own gospel. And that, so they... They try to use a good point of the Apostle Paul against the Apostle Paul. But that's not what we find at all here. 
the, the Apostle Paul wasn't so smart that he came up with his own gospel message. The gospel that he preached was a gospel that had been revealed to him by God. So not only did it not originate with him, it was not a product of his own uh, intellect or imagination, he also did not merely take the the message of the gospel that was given to him and then modify it after it had been received from another man. That's why he goes to such great lengths to say in this opening chapter that, you know, when he was saved, he didn't he didn't go, um, you know, and, and uh, talk to the other apostles immediately about this. And then he took what was given to him by men and then simply then tweaked it and made it then into his own gospel. No, Paul says uh, clearly in verse 12, he says this, that he did not receive his gospel, quote, of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of of Jesus Christ. It was divinely given to the Apostle Paul when he was on that road to Damascus, when Christ himself not only saved Paul's never-dying soul, but then called Paul into the ministry, and specifically into the ministry of the apostleship. We're going to look more at this when we come back from the break. We'll talk about this gospel and what the gospel that Paul received from Christ did in his own life. This is an important point here that Paul, you know, it's not just an objective thing to him, but it actually subjectively really changed the Apostle Paul's life. And that's, a, that's an important aspect of the gospel message and those who preach it. We'll talk more about that when we come back from the break. You're listening to Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling. For more information about today's program, the radio ministry, and the resources we offer, go to www.knowingthetruth.org. Welcome back to Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling. Information regarding the resources referenced on today's program can be found at www.knowingthetruth.org. Now, here to continue with today's program is Pastor Kevin Bowling. Okay, welcome back into the second half of the Knowing the Truth radio program. On the first half of the broadcast, I was just getting started into the point, the first point that comes in the opening two chapters of the book of Galatians, and that's the personal narrative of the Apostle Paul, where Paul speaks of himself as a preacher of justification. And what he's emphasizing here is that the gospel message did not originate with him that the, the gospel is not a product of Paul's intellect or his imagination. He didn't modify a message that he had received from another man, but rather he received the revelation directly from Jesus Christ himself. And not only did he receive the revelation about the gospel, but he was also called to preach that gospel as an, in the apostolic ministry by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the next point that the Apostle Paul makes is that he has received the same gospel that, um, that he is preaching. You know, he isn't talking about something that is just an objective truth to him, something, you know, abstract uh, theological concepts that have been shown to him but have had no direct impact or bearing upon his own life. That's not the case at all. And that's why Paul here um, gives his testimony as to what has taken place. You know, Paul, it, he felt it in his soul. He could not help but preach the truth of the gospel message because that objective truth that he believed had such a deep subjective impact upon his never-dying soul. Now, that's a very important point. You know, the last thing that we need these days is people preaching the gospel message that haven't actually felt the change of that gospel uh, that, that in their own soul, the, the reception of that gospel in their own soul. So Paul, in this uh, passage, he again gives an aspect of his how that, how totally and radically the gospel message that he received revolutionized his life and made a huge impact in his life. You know, so, you hear so many people 
talk today about the gospel message, it, it, it seems as if we're just hoping to have some sort of behavior modification of the person's life. You know, that they don't really need anything revolutionary. They just need a little bit of reform. They just need a little bit, you know, we just kind of uh, help them to make a few resolutions about trying to do things better. And that uh, that's what the gospel message seems, in some cases, to be reduced to. Well, that's not the gospel message that Paul preached. That's not the gospel message of the Scriptures. The gospel message of the Scripture doesn't just bring about behavior modification. It brings about true, lasting, uh, soul-level transformation in the person's life. You know, the one just a mere behavior modification, it would be like taking people who are still dead in their trespasses and their sins and, you know, putting a new... Uh, suit and tie on them and propping them up in the pew and then wondering why, you know, people are responding to the message where what we basically have is just uh, whited sepulchers, you know, sitting in the, in the pews. They've never really been changed by the gospel message. That's not what happens with the message of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the message of Jesus Christ has the power to burst the coffin lid. It has the power to take a dead man and bring him to life by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit of God, uh, received into his soul and then enabling him to then embrace Christ as he has preached uh, to him. So he sees himself, after he's been regenerated, the, the man, the sinner, sees himself for what he truly is before God and how he is worthy of the of the wrath of God being poured out upon him. But at the same time, he sees his only hope as being in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And by faith, he embraces Christ and all the promises of Christ that are given to him in the gospel message. And this has a remarkable transformation in the person's life, as Paul wrote later in one of his other epistles, that is a new creature in Christ, right? The sinner becomes a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. This is what Paul says about this gospel message here in this text. He, he In the opening chapter, he says this, For ye have heard of my uh, conversation in times past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God, and wasted it, the Apostle Paul says. And then he says, and I profited in the Jews' religion above my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, and I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. So there's the, Paul, the Apostle Paul's testimony. You know, he said, man, I, was, uh, I actually fought against this very same gospel. I was, uh, you know, zealously fighting against it and separating people from their families, and in the case of Stephen, resulting in people's death and imprisonment and so forth. And yet the Paul said, but Christ intervened. He saved my never-dying soul, which he says was part of the, because Paul was one of the elect, he points back to that he had separated him long beforehand uh, unto the salvation. But in time, the grace of God actually came to the Apostle Paul, and uh, the, the message of the gospel came to him, and he was transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this, this has a huge impact upon the way that we think about the gospel message. Paul, the, he talks about the gospel then in the opening couple of verses of this opening chapter. He says that uh, he starts with this statement that, that makes these points. He says that grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, there's a number of things that we can see in this passage, and this isn't unique to me, but you would see the source of the gospel that is here. It says that it was according to the will of the Father. We see the substance of the gospel here. It says that Christ gave himself for our sins, the atoning work of Christ. We see the strength of the gospel here. It says that it might deliver us from this present evil world. And we see the song of the gospel here. It says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, this gospel is not a self-help message. This isn't saying, you know, it's not like that old saying that said that God helps those who help themselves. This is not that God is merely just supporting man in some sort of a man-made program to, to better himself. And so now God has been brought in, and some, you know, some scriptural principles have been brought in to man's program, and then God and man together are doing this work of salvation. No, this, this isn't what this is. This is not a song of self-congratulation, but rather it is the song of grace, the song of grace, praising a sovereign God for the perfect salvation that he has provided and purchased on behalf of, of his people. That's what this is. This is why, at the end of it, when he breaks into praise, he says, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Talking about the glory going to God. Otherwise, if it was a man-centered message, then he would say, And, and I have done this wonderful thing, and praise be to me because I have done this wonderful thing. I was smart enough. I was moral enough to receive the gospel message. No, that's not the gospel at all. We weren't smart enough. We weren't certainly weren't moral enough. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins, and uh, Christ intervened. Christ uh, broke into time and space and saved our never-dying souls. I've told this story before on the broadcast, but it's Maybe it's worth uh, mentioning here once again as well. I was actually uh, in a doctor's appointment, and I was uh, many years ago. I don't go to this doctor any longer, and uh, but I was in this doctor appointment, and and I was reading a book. I believe I had a book by R.C. Sproul that I was reading. So what I went in, the doctor was a believer as well, and he commented on the book that was in my hand, and. I started to talk a little bit about what the book was about and the gospel and so forth. And and uh, he said, hey, this is the way that I see it. You know, I picture it. He said uh, um, that I picture that, you know, the gospel and the church is kind of like a lifeboat and, um, you know, this uh, big cruise liner type of thing. And uh, that the the sinners that are yet outside of Christ that they are out in the water. So the gospel then is that we reach and we grab these life preservers that are on the boat, and you know, those round life preservers, and we toss those out into the water, and then we encourage the people to grab hold of the life preserver, and then when they grab hold of the life preserver, which would be them then showing an indication that they want to trust in Christ, then the gospel is, you know, we help them, we pull the rope, we pull them bigger towards the bigger ship, we uh, then reach down and bring them aboard, you know, as they receive Christ as their Savior, they come aboard the gospel ship that he's picturing. He says, what do you think about that? And I said, uh, I don't like it. <laughs> I said that um, it's not an accurate picture of what the Scripture tells us about salvation. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, the the picture, it, using your same illustration, would be this way, that there are people out in the water, like you said, and I'll go ahead with your analogy of the, of the ship being the gospel and the church and, you know, the saved people and the life preservers being the gospel that we're throwing to them. But here's the problem. The Scripture says that not that people are wounded or weak, in their trespasses and their sins, which your analogy had them as, you know, they were weak, they were treading water, they might have been tired, they were about to drown, and this type of thing. The scripture says 
that they are dead in their trespasses and their sins. So you've got a, uh, in your analogy, we would have to have a whole group of uh, people floating face down in the water without any ability whatsoever to actually grab the life preservers that you're throwing out. So you can throw out all the life preservers you want. Uh, throw them all out there. Make the best presentation you can. Urge them with everything that's within you to grab the life preserver and come on to the gospel ship. Here's the only problem. They're dead in their trespasses and their sins. They can't lift one finger to grab that. Unless God does the first work of regenerating their never-dying souls, which would then cause life to be in them, then them reaching out because of the regenerating work of God in their soul, they would then be able to recognize their dangerous condition that they're in and then reach out and grab onto that, uh, that life preserver and then to be pulled aboard this gospel ship. That would be more in keeping with what we find in the scriptures. Up until the point that God would give them life, they could not come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, in your analogy, it's not a gospel of, of grace. It's a gospel of work. And maybe somewhat of grace, you probably have, maybe it's a little bit more of a synergistic message where uh, both God and man work together for man's salvation. But uh, in either case, man is playing a role in his own salvation. And that is a gospel of works. We don't find that in the Word of God, and this is what Paul is speaking against in, um, in the book of Galatians. So Paul is not giving some sort of a self-congratulatory message, but a song of grace. It is all of God. God has done this gracious work on our behalf. When we were unlovely, lovely, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, when we had a, a carnal mind that was enmity against God. We didn't have good thoughts about God and want to turn to God. Uh, we didn't understand a pre uh, presentation that was given to us, no matter how good the presentation was. We hated God in our natural condition. We wanted nothing to do with God. We were the masters of our own domain, and we had bought into Satan's lie and completely in opposition to the things of God. But God, but God, as uh, the Apostle Paul says to, to the Ephesians, he intervened with his grace, and he enabled us through the work of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration to be able to see our awful condition, and then, based upon the work that God did first, to be able to choose Christ and received Christ as our Savior, as he's presented to us in the Scriptures. So here, then, is the gospel message. It is a message of saving grace bestowed upon us based upon the grounds of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the starting point of the gospel message, and the, uh, where the gospel begins and where the gospel ends. It ends with praising God, not with praising man for what he has decided to do. So that's the opening couple of chapters that are given to us. The, uh, the next couple of chapters, as I mentioned, they have this the primary uh, doctrinal argument that are here. And here, Paul, he, um, he points to the principles of justification. Now, there's a lot of uh, deep theology here in this section, and I'm hoping as we go through our study that we'll be able to delve down into each one of these things but for today, let me just mention the different subjects that are here. First of all, in chapter 3, in the opening five verses, we find the experience of the Galatians is mentioned here first in, uh, at the beginning of this section. Then we find the blessing of Abraham is spoken about, the curse of the law after that, the promise of the covenant then, the purpose of the law is found in chapter 3 and verse 19, through 29, the sonship of the believer, and then towards the end of this section, he speaks about not only the futility 
of ritualism in chapter 4 and verses 8 through 20, but he also then brings in other cases from the Old Testament scriptures as illustrations in the closing chapters of uh, closing verses of chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. So he brings in Hagar and um, Isaac and Ishmael and so forth in those passages. So there's going to be a lot there in those chapters that we're going to look at why the apostle mentions these different these different aspects uh, uh, throughout those chapters. In chapters three and four, then show us that the so basically, if I could sum it up, it shows us that the law was never meant as a means of justification. The law was designed to lead men to Christ. That's the idea. Paul speaks about it here in this section, that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now listen to that, right? The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So it just showed us our need for what uh, sin was. It revealed to us, you know, how to define sin. It showed us the absolute standard by which we would all be accountable unto God, that inflexible standard of the moral law of God. But it couldn't save us in and of itself. It it then uh, brought us to the place where we then turned to Christ, we realized we couldn't keep the law and all of its demands perfectly on our behalf. Therefore, we needed to turn to God, to turn to God's way of salvation that was provided for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how the law was used, as a schoolmaster to just bring us to Christ. So it never saved anybody. Nobody in the Old Testament was saved by the law Nobody in the New Testament is saved by the law. So the Apostle says, why would you possibly want to go backwards? Why would you possibly want to go all the way back into the law in order to, uh, to find salvation there when you have the substance of the gospel message, not the shadow of it as it was given in the Old Testament, you have the substance with you now. Now, the application here would be this, that the threat of the gospel of grace is very real. The Apostle Paul speaks here about the bewitching of the believers that took place in this passage. That bewitching means the charming of them. They charmed them with these, with these enticing words, but they charmed them with enticing words in order to bring evil upon them. That's what he said. Uh, Paul Paul in Galatians 2.4, he said this, false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty that we have in Jesus Christ that they might bring us into bondage. So they were not true Christians. Uh, They were those upon whom the Apostle Paul had announced his anathema, yet they were in the church and they were professing themselves among the people of God, and this is what made them so dangerous. Remember in the last book that we studied in our study of the Minor Prophets, the book of Malachi, it talked about there being two groups of people. It was warning us as we approached the New Testament scriptures 400 years later when it would uh, the book of Matthew would come on the scenes, but it was telling us that there were two groups of people to be aware of. One group was a group that was religious but not right with God, and the other group was a group that was religious but they were right with God, the true people of God. Now we come to the New Testament, we find this is exactly what we find. The wheat and the tares growing up together in the church. One group is saved, one group is not saved. And the group that is not saved is trying to uh, persecute and trying to persuade the saved group to come over onto the the dark side with them. So the legalistic attack of the gospel of grace is something that is ever-present among the people of God. And as we look throughout church history, we see that there was always this effort to subvert the gospel of grace. Now let me just say that there are whole uh, uh, religions today that embrace the very thing that was anathematized by the Apostle Paul to the Galatians. 
And one of those denominations is the Roman Catholic doctrine. I came out of Romanism. I was raised in Romanism for 17 years. I uh, went to an all-Catholic uh, grammar school and a, uh, an all-boys Catholic high school. You know, I know what I'm talking about. Uh, Rome's central doctrine is a system of works righteousness. It's another gospel, but it's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. And the false teaching is not confined to Romanism. It has bled over now into many Protestant churches as well. For instance, when evangelicals teach that God's election is dependent upon God's foresight, that he just looked down a tunnel of time and conceived that we were going to believe at some point in time, that is a system of human works, not a system based upon the salvation that is revealed to us in the Scriptures, which is by grace. Basically, they're saying that that person would come to salvation by themselves, therefore God elected them. It doesn't even make sense. Why would God need to elect them if they were going to come to salvation by themselves? <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? It completely destroys the gospel message. And not only that, but some Protestant churches, you know, they also uh, teach a false gospel when they speak that the work of re regeneration is something that was synergistic, that it is man and God working together in cooperation together in order to bring about salvation. That, that certainly weakens or destroys the doctrine of grace. It makes man a co-savior along with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to be very careful. And any attempt to mix legalism with the gospel of grace produces guilt theology. And guilt theology destroys Christian liberty as we know it. We'll talk more about this on the broadcast tomorrow. Just remember this, the Lord Jesus Christ said, He said you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We'll see you next time. You're listening to Knowing the Truth. To keep this ministry strong and coming your way, you can make a financial gift at knowingthetruth.org by clicking on the Donate button. You've been listening to Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling. Knowing the Truth is the outreach ministry of the Mountain Bridge Bible Fellowship in Traveler's Rest. For more information about the church and radio ministry, visit us on the web at knowingthetruth.org. The opinions expressed on today's program are those of the announcers, their guests, and callers, and do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of His Radio Talk, His Radio Network, or the Radio Training Network.